Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you love God enough to think about Him? Episode 115, The Aborted Council at Sertica in 343. In this series of podcasts, we're working through the various creeds that resulted from the controversy following the Council at Nicaea in 325. Most Catholic Christians, most mainstream Christians in the churches ruled by bishops, were not willing to accept that as a settlement of the dispute. They were not willing to accept that as normative theological language. And so there were a series of further arguments which resulted in a number of attempted replacements for that language. In this episode, we're working our way towards the first long, significant Western contribution to this dispute. We've so far heard a couple of attempts that have basically issued from the Eastern wing of Christianity, some of their attempts to replace the Nicene Creed with something better. What we'll hear in this episode is a Western pushback. It's Western bishops correcting what they view as the wrong-headed, dangerously mistaken theology of the Easterners. And it's basically a gloss on the Nicene Creed, an attempt to explicate it or say the same thing in a different way, rather than an attempt to replace it. But before we get to all that, I want us to listen to a couple of famous and I think much abused passages from the Gospel according to John. I want you to hear these passages in their context, and you'll hear them come up again when we eventually get to the Creed. The first is from the Gospel according to John chapter 10, starting in verse 8. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and we will be satisfied. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you all this time, Philip, and you still do not know me? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. But if you do not, then believe me because of the works themselves. Very truly, I tell you, the one who believes in me will also do the works that I do, and, in fact, will do greater works than these, because I am going to the Father. I will do whatever you ask in my name, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If in my name you ask me for anything, I will do it. At that time the festival of dedication took place in Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple, in the portico of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. Jesus answered, I have told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name testify to me. But you do not believe, because you do not belong to my sheep. My sheep hear my voice. I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. 
no one will snatch them out of my hand. What my Father has given me is greater than all else, and no one can snatch it out of the Father's hand. The Father and I are one. The Jews took up stones again to stone him. Jesus replied, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of these are you going to stone me? The Jews answered, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, though only a human being, are making yourself God. Sorry to interrupt here, but there is an alternate translation for that last statement. The Jews answered, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, though only a human being, are making yourself a god. Jesus answered, Is it not written in your law? I said, You are gods. If those to whom the word of God came were called gods, and the scripture cannot be annulled, can you say that the one whom the Father has sanctified and sent into the world is blaspheming because I said, I am God's Son? If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works, so that you may know and understand that the Father is in me, and I am in the Father. They tried to arrest him again, but he escaped from their hands. What should be made of Jesus' statement that the Father and I are one? Look at the context. What does the context tell you about what he means? The Jews, who in the Gospel of John are his spiritually blind, always overreacting, misunderstanding opponents, the Jews say that he's making himself God or making himself a God. How does Jesus react to that suggestion? That's the author's way of specifying, clarifying what was meant by the original comment that set them off, that the Father and I are one. The second passage that will come up is in John chapter 17. And this is Jesus, and part of what interpreters call his high priestly prayer. And he's praying to God, asking them to bless his followers after he's gone that is, after he's been resurrected and raised to God's right hand. And this is part of what he prays for them. I have given them your word, and the world hated them because they do not belong to the world, just as I do not belong to the world. I am not asking you to take them out of the world, but I ask you to protect them from the evil one. As you have sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. I ask not only on behalf of these, but also on behalf of those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one. As you, Father, are in me, and I am in you, may they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me I have given them, so that they may be one, as we are one, I in them, and you in me, that they may be completely one, so that the world may know that you have sent me, and have loved them as you have loved me. 
Father, I desire that those also whom you have given me may be with me where I am, to see my glory, which you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Righteous Father, the world does not know you, but I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made your name known to them, and I will make it known, so that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. This passage again has Jesus talking about being one with his Father. He puts it a little differently here. He says to the Father that you are in me, and I am in you. And he prays that his followers would be one as we are one. Again, what does this tell us about what he means by saying the Father and I are one? In what sense could Jesus' followers be one with him and with God? I think the context makes it pretty clear. What do you think? When we get to our main creed, you'll hear the appeal to these two passages, and you can compare what you think to what they say about these passages. When we come back, the story of the council which perished in a late-term abortion. Last time we heard about what historians call the Fourth Creed from the Council of Antioch in 341, maybe it was from 342, I called it the Recycled Creed because it was eventually reused five more times. It's an interesting creed, it's basically an Eastern reaction to Nicaea, and it expresses what you could call a Eusebian or a subordinationist approach to understanding Jesus and God. In that creed, the Father is the one God. And Jesus is God from God, but they decline to say that he's true God from true God. And the status of the Holy Spirit is pretty much left ambiguous, as it is in all early creeds. That creed was an Eastern overture to Western bishops. There was a delegation sent from Antioch to the West, and they said, here, this is what we think about these things, and the Westerners proceeded to basically ignore it. But they realized they had a problem on their hands. And the people in charge, the two co-emperors at this time, started to get worried about this growing rift. So the Western Emperor Constans called for a great ecumenical council, and his co-emperor, the Eastern Emperor Constantius, agreed, although he was busy at the time fighting the Persians in the eastern portion of his empire. So the fancy imperial invitations went out in the year 342, and then, probably in 343, there's some confusion in our historical sources about the exact year, a big group of bishops assembled at Sertica, also spelled Sartica, and this is modern Sofia in Bulgaria. The reason they picked this location is it was on the eastern edge of the western half of the Roman Empire. It was sort of a neutral location. So there was such a feeling of hostility between the two groups at this point, they felt they needed a neutral venue. How many people responded to these invitations? Historians think that 90, maybe 98 Western bishops showed up, and 80 Eastern bishops. That's a pretty good showing. On the face of it, they got a good turnout. The Western Emperor Constans was there himself, and with him was Athanasius, 
and some other Eastern bishops who had been deposed by Easterners, but who had found refuge with various Western bishops, including the Pope, the Bishop of Rome. You've got two emperors calling the council. You've got attendees from more or less all over the empire. You've got almost an equal number of Western Latin-speaking bishops and Eastern Greek-speaking bishops. What could possibly go wrong? Actually, there was less buy-in by the Easterners than would appear from just counting them. R.P.C. Hansen, in his book, The Search for the Christian Doctrine of God, comments, The divisors of this meeting were certainly not Eastern bishops. Socrates expressly says that they did not want to come. It was a small group of Western bishops, influential with Constans, who planned the council. End quote. So the Easterners were feeling kind of set up. After all, it's the Western emperor presiding, and there are more Westerners, and they seem to have organized the agenda. Everything was set then, both sides had come together, people had traveled a long way at great expense, everything was moving, and just as the council was about to happen, it didn't happen. The Easterners arrive, they're housed in the imperial palace, but then it becomes clear that they're not necessarily willing to go through with it. Roman Catholic historian Leo Donald Davis says this, The Easterners promptly challenged the right of Athanasius, Marcellus of Ancyra, and Aslepius of Gaza in Palestine to sit in the council since they had been deposed and their cases would be under review by the council. When their challenge was rejected, the Easterners left by night on the excuse that they had to go east to celebrate Constantius II's victory over the Persians. End quote. Davis makes it sound like they just scuttled away on a pretext. Actually, if you think about it, this was a very serious issue. What had happened was that bishops who had been kicked out by people in their own region by various meetings were then reinstated as bishops and allowed to function as such at this meeting with some of the people who had kicked them out. This type of interference between different bishops is one of the things that they wanted to talk about, of course, and you can't have these very people in on that discussion. RPC Hansen explains the situation a little more fully. Quote, The Council of Sertica never met as a council. It was, in fact, a debacle rather than a council, and it is absurd to reckon it among the general councils, whether we look at it from the point of view of the Western or that of the Eastern bishops, the unwilling eastern bishops, spurred on by Philagrius, on reaching Sertica, were housed in a wing of the imperial palace and carefully kept from informal contact with the western bishops. In spite of this, two of their number, Arius of a Palestinian and Asterius of an Arabian sea, managed to change sides and join the western bishops. The eastern bishops refused to join counsel with the western bishops until these had separated themselves from the bishops who had been tried, condemned, and deposed by regularly convened and ordered Eastern councils. This demand was the rock upon which the attempt to effect a council at Sertica split. At first sight, says Simonetti, quote, it was a splitting of hairs and a pretext, but in reality it was a plea which sparked off the crucial point of the situation and of the confrontation, end quote. The Easterners had no intention of allowing the Westerners to review decisions which they were competent to make. The Westerners had no intention of behaving as if the decision of a council of Rome could be regarded as ineffective. The Easterners had a perfectly good case, and this fact, till recently, has not been sufficiently realized. 
Western bishops had no right to review the verdicts of Eastern councils. The Bishop of Rome had never before gone so far as to question the decision of an Eastern council. Metropolitan jurisdictions were fairly clearly established in the East, but were still in an uncertain and unformed state in the West. End quote. So the Easterners retreat, or if you like, they run away, and in another city a short distance away, they issue a statement. I'll tell you what was in the Eastern Statement in a minute, but first, here's Hansen's summary of what happened after the council. Quote, Both sides took the most imprudent measures towards the others. The Western bishops examined the cases of Athanasius, of Marcellus, of Eschlepus, and of Lucius all over again, and declared them innocent. The Easterners excommunicated Osius, Protogenes, Maximinus, Gaudentius, and Julius. The Western bishops excommunicated Stephen, Theodorus, Achaicus, Narcissus, Valens, Ursacius, Basil of Ancyra, Quintianus of Gaza, Menophantus, and even George, just elected to the see of Laodicea, who was not present at Sertica. The Easterners branded all the Westerners as Sabellians. The Westerners stigmatized all the Easterners as Arians. Both charges were equally ridiculous. End quote. Just a brief comment. I find this depressing that at such an early date in Christian history, people are just throwing around these categories, Sibelian, Arian, and just using them to dismiss one another. These categories are a replacement for serious thought, for any detailed discussion of actual theological subject matter, for any kind of detailed exegesis and careful argument about the meaning of authoritative Christian sources. This is like political discourse where the left-wing people call the right-wing people fascists and the right-wing people call the left-wing people communists. It's not serious, and a Christian should think also that it's not godly. It's the exact opposite of quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger. That's taught by James in the New Testament. This is, we're not going to listen, we're going to tell you how it is, and we're already mad, and you're a bloody heretic, and shut up. Oh, and we're taking your job away. When the Trinity's podcast returns, what happened after the Easterners abandoned the council? happened then to this almost grand ecumenical council when one side withdrew? Did the Westerners say, oh man, we were really hoping for some dialogue there. I guess uh, we'll just have to renegotiate and come back. Oh no. The Westerners stayed there in Sertica and continued on without them and blasted the Easterners and as we heard, deposed a bunch of their bishops. In the process, they sent out a letter to all churches, which included a lengthy profession of faith that we'll hear later in this episode. And they also sent letters to various other parties trying to influence them, to the bishops of Egypt, to the churches of Alexandria, to the bishop of Rome named Julius, to the emperor Constantius, and so on. 
Athanasius sent a letter to people in Alexandria, hotly denouncing the Easterners, of course. But I mentioned before the break that the Easterners went a short distance away and then issued their own statement as they were retreating. What was that statement? It was basically the recycled creed. That is, what historians call the fourth creed of Antioch in 341. So, they stuck by their guns. Theologically, they didn't see any reason to change or to compromise any language at all. They did, though, add a paragraph to it, which runs as follows. Likewise, the Holy and Catholic Church anathematizes those who say that there are three gods, or that Christ is not God, and that before the ages he was neither Christ nor the Son of God, or that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are the same, or that the Son was ingenerate, or that the Father did not beget the Son by his counsel and will. Now, what's the point of this? There's really no theology here. What they're doing is they're declaring what sort of language that they'd be against. So you can't say three gods. Why? Presumably because of the unique status of the Father. You do, for them, have three divine hypostases, three divine beings, but the one God is one of those. You can't say that Christ is not God. That sort of language is just required now. You almost never see it in the New Testament. It's only in a very small handful of passages which is disputed. It could be as low as once or twice, or as many as maybe eight times but out of all the usages of the words translated as God, capital G-O-D, just a tiny handful apply to Christ. But this became more of a tradition in Catholic Christianity in the second century and in the third century. And by now, well, if you're not going to say that, well, you must think Christ is a mere man. Can't say that before the ages he was neither Christ nor Son, so you can't be any kind of adoptionist or think that in any sense he became the Messiah or the Son of God. Can't say the Father, Son, and Spirit are the same. Presumably, that's a swipe against, quote, Sibelianism. Just collapsing them into one being, basically. You can't say that the Son is ingenerate. You must say that he's generated. And you have to say that that eternal begetting or generation is by the counsel and will of the Father. It's something that he did willingly, purposefully. It's not some kind of involuntary emanation, as you have imagined in some of the Greek philosophies. So what they're trying to say to the Westerners, as Hansen points out, is, look, we're against those Sibelians, we're against Arius's specific doctrine, we're not tritheists, we're against tritheism. But the main point is, we're sticking to the 341 Creed as a better statement of Christian faith than Nicaea. Now, back to the Westerners having their own non-ecumenical council at Sertica, what did they do? Well, they defended the deposed bishops and said that they had been falsely accused and it was criminals accusing them. They just flatly took the sides of Athanasius and others. They declared Marcellus of Ancyra to be perfectly orthodox. He convinced them that uh, his views were within the bounds of orthodoxy and that he didn't set an end point to Christ's reign. Who's right about this? I have no idea. It's very common in these disputes for one side to misrepresent the other side, or to jump at something they said and misinterpret it, take it out of context. 
on the face of it, it's surprising to think that Christ would come to an end or his reign would come to an end. And as to doctrine, Davis says this, Osius then wanted to issue a new creedal statement, but when Athanasius convinced the bishops that any defection from the pronouncements of Nicaea would be fatal to their cause, they contented themselves with the reissue of the Nicene Creed. To it they attached explanations drawn up by Osius and Protogenes of Sardica. Now I'm unclear whether they actually reissued the creed, It is clear from what some of the Westerners said afterwards that they intended their statement to be a kind of restatement or clarification with what was in the Creed of Nicaea. So it seems clear that they weren't backing down and they weren't willing to replace it, certainly with what the Easterners thought was better. Hansen doesn't mention their reissuing the Nicene Creed, and he characterizes the statement which you're about to hear as their profession of faith. This Western profession of faith from Sertica in 343 is very interesting, and it's very confusing. So, unlike what I normally do, I'm going to break it down into pieces and comment as we go along and try to explain what's happening here. Here, then, is how the creed starts out. We disqualify and extrude from the Catholic Church those who assert that Christ is indeed God, but that he is not true God, that he is Son, but not true Son, that he is begotten and at the same time has come into existence. So they start right out by sticking their finger in the Easterner's eye. It's not good enough to say that Christ is God. You've got to say true God. And you can't just say Son, but you have to say true Son. And you can't allow that in any sense, in any way, the Son has come into existence. And so they continue... And recently, two adders have been born from the Arian Asp, Valens and Ursacius, who declare and state without equivocation, though they call themselves Christian, that the Logos and the Spirit was pierced and wounded and died and rose again. And what the heretical rabble likes to claim, that the hypostasis of the Father, of the Son and of the Holy Spirit are distinct and are separate. But we have received and have been taught this Catholic and apostolic tradition that there is one hypostasis which the heretics call Usia, of the Father, of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And if anyone asks what is the hypostasis of the Son, it is obviously that which is of the only Father. We confess that neither the Father ever existed without the Son, nor the Son without the Spirit. The witness of the Son himself is, I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, and the Father and I are one. So this section starts off with some frankly depressing invective. It's what philosopher would call poisoning the well. When you don't argue to the point at hand, when you're not arguing from a claim, but merely turning to attack your opponent... That's called an ad hominem fallacy. It's an argument against the man rather than against whatever it is we're actually arguing about. So it's a fallacy of irrelevancy. And one of the most poisonous, meanest, nastiest types of ad hominem attack is what people call poisoning the well. And this is where you make some suggestion that just your opponent can't even be argued with. There's no point in in even having a rational discussion with this person because they're just horrible. So, two of the Eastern bishops are little snakes that have been born from the big snake, Arius. 
really. And these snakes merely call themselves Christian. And it's just something that the heretical rabble says, that the hypostases of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit are distinct and separate. Distinct and separate. Presumably distinct here would be non-identical, and separate would mean that they don't share an essence. Well, this is the very thing that Nicaea insisted upon, but which was never clear before then. If you believe in universals and uh, the platonic idea that individual things to some degree participate in universals, so the universals are somehow present within them, then back in the day of, say, origin, you'd have the Father, that's God, and he would be goodness and deity itself. He would be the platonic form. And then in different degrees, the Son and the Holy Spirit would participate in him, which implies that they have a degree of divinity. Which divinity? His divinity. He is the universal divinity in this way of thinking. So would they be separate? Well, they're, they're separate just as any individual entities are separate. They're just as separate as three different men are separate even though they have supposedly the universal humanity within them. Look, this is just not obviously something that stupid and bad people think. So this comment about heretical rabble is just over the top. Now these so-called Arians are criticized for saying that the logos and spirit was pierced and wounded and died and rose. What? For one thing, this seems to confuse the Logos, which according to Logos theory, which is dominant now, it's just been more or less universally accepted, it seems to confuse the Logos with the Holy Spirit. And there were people who read uh, the Gospel according to Luke, where the Spirit of God overshadows Mary and she becomes pregnant. There were some who envisioned that as kind of the eternal Logos, the Spirit there the Spirit of God coming down into Mary uh, so as to inhabit a fetus within her. This seems to be passing on that kind of language. And apparently they think the Arians are not distinguishing between the Logos and that which, to use later language, the Logos assumed. And if they don't make that distinction, then if the man is crucified, well, the Logos is crucified. And that's crazy because everybody knows the Logos is divine and can't be crucified. It can't undergo any change and it can't be harmed and it can't be killed. We'll talk more about this in a minute. And in contrast to these dirty heretics, we're just teaching the apostolic tradition, which they say is that there's one hypostasis, which the heretics call usia of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. They're using the word hypostasis here to mean essence. Without going into the confused and confusing history of these terms, at this time, hypostasis most commonly meant an individual, like a being, an entity, rather than a property or a feature or the defining features of an entity. They're using the term in a way which an Eastern Greek-speaking theologian would not use it. They're using it as synonymous with usia, which we translate as essence or substance in English. And if anyone says, what's the hypostasis of the Son? Well, obviously, it's that which is of the only Father. So again, this is doubling down on the claims of Nicaea. They're saying that it's obvious that the Son has the same essence as the Father, and that he gets his essence from the Father, however you're supposed to take that. 
And why should you accept these controversial statements? You heard it, didn't you? The two little one-sentence quotes from the Gospel according to John. I'm in the Father, and the Father's in me, and the Father and I are one. You heard those passages in context. Are they just offering worthless proof texts, or do the passages really kind of back them up? They continue. None of us denies the term begotten, but begotten in what circumstances? Do we say that the maker of archangels and angels and the world and the human race was begotten, along with absolutely everything else which is called visible and invisible? Because the text runs, Wisdom, who is the fashioner of all things, and all things came into being through him, and without him not one thing came into being. For he could never have received beginning of existence. For the Logos of God exists eternally and has no beginning, nor does he undergo an end. This statement at the end again shows you the triumph of the Logos theory. If the Logos of God is the reason of God, well, God is an essentially intelligent being. He's by his essence omniscient. So God's reason has to be just as old as God. There was no time when God lacked that. That's not controversial. Of course, what's controversial is identifying this Logos with the pre-human Jesus. But in this time, you could just quote from John 1, all things came into being through this Logos, and you could quote the Book of Wisdom, which mentions God's wisdom, who is the fashioner, the maker of all things. And in this time, it was just assumed to be obvious that that was the pre-human Jesus. So they continue... And in this part, obviously, they're making anti-Sibelian statements. They're saying they do distinguish between the Father and the Son. We do not say that the Father is the Son, nor that the Son is the Father. But the Father is Father, and the Son is Son of the Father. We confess that the Son is the power of the Father, the Logos of God the Father, besides whom there is no other. And the Logos is true God, and wisdom, and power and that he is true son. We do not name him son, as other sons are named, because they are named sons, either by adoption, or because they have been born again, or because they deserve the name, not because of the single hypothesis, which is that of the father and of the son. We confess that he is only begotten and firstborn, but the Logos is only begotten, since he always was, and is in the father but the term firstborn applies to his humanity and to the new creation because he is also firstborn from the dead. We confess that there is one God. We confess the one deity of Father and Son, and nobody denies that the Father is somehow greater than the Son, not because of another hypothesis, nor because of any difference, but because the name Father itself is greater than Son. So they're not collapsing the Father and the Son. The Son is the power of the Father and the wisdom of the Father. Seemingly, although it's unclear, they're taking that literally. That the Son is literally that attribute of divine wisdom. It's literally God's power. On the face of it, that seems like nonsense. It seems like a category mistake to think that an intelligent agent a being, a divine self, could be an attribute of, well, anything. 
if I told you that my son used to be my sense of humor, you would be scratching your head. You, it wouldn't even occur to you to take that literally. If I told you that my daughter was my weighing 150 pounds, either now or previously, I mean, that's just crazy talk, right? Can there be something which is a divine self, an intelligent agent, and an attribute of a divine agent? It sounds like they're assuming that they don't do anything to dispel that impression. They continue, you, you can't just call him son, you have to say true son. They realize that the term son is ambiguous. People who are born again are sons of God. People can be characterized as sons because their behavior is godly. But in this case, they insist Jesus is called true son, not for reasons like that, but because he has a single hypostasis with the father. Again, they're assuming that's equivalent to the claim that father and son are homoousios in the Nicene Creed. How can Jesus be called firstborn in the New Testament? They say that applies to his humanity and to the new creation and because he's firstborn from the dead. So to say that he's firstborn doesn't say anything about his beginning to exist because he never did begin to exist, but it only applies to his humanity. What? What's his humanity? If it applies to his humanity, doesn't it apply to him? Or apply to him because of his humanity? Unclear. And the last bit, I think, really gets to the heart of the ambiguity in the Nicene Creed. They say, we confess there's one God... We confess the one deity, the one Godhead of Father and Son. Okay, but is the one God the Father, or is the one God the Trinity? Seemingly, the one God is still the Father. However, he has shared his deity with the Son. What does that mean? What is this deity that can be shared? Well, presumably, it's a universal essence. But then if you have two things with the universal essence, then you've got two things of that kind. If you have two things sharing in humanity, you've got two humans. If you have two beings sharing in caninity, you have two dogs. So if you have father and son, which are different, which are distinguishable, that is, they're non-identical, and each of them has godhood, has divinity, has deity, You've got two gods, but they say we confess that there's one God, and I assume here that they mean the Father. And remember, in this period and before, and this goes back to some of the early Logos theologians, when challenged about whether they're teaching a second God, because they are teaching two creators, they think that God didn't create directly, but that he first kind of emanated out this Logos, and then he had another agent who could directly do the making of the cosmos, so God didn't have to, as it were, get his hands dirty. They did have, in a sense, two creators. When ordinary Christians protested and said, hey, we believe in one creator, God the Father Almighty, their answer was to emphasize the uniqueness of the Father, his underived deity, his omnipotence and omniscience, which they usually would explicitly say the Son did not share. And they would quote when the Son says the Father is greater than him in the Gospel of John. And of course, the so-called Arians, or rather subordinationist Catholic theologians, quoted that passage fairly often. What then do these Western bishops say about that passage? What's their take on it? 
oh yeah, of course the Father's somehow greater than the Son, but not because there's any difference in hypostasis, essence, but because the name Father itself is greater than Son. Huh? That's a real head-scratcher. If you got two beings, they both share an essence. You're going to say that one is somehow greater because the name given to it is greater? So if we have two emperors and we call one emperor and one grand super-duper emperor, that makes the second one greater? This is just unintelligible. They're overconfident. They don't care to make it intelligible. They continue turning on the so-called Arians, saying this. This is their blasphemous and corrupt interpretation. They contend that he said the Father and I are one because of the agreement and harmony. We who are Catholics condemn this silly and wretched idea of theirs. Just as mortal men, when they begin to differ, confront each other in their disputes and then again return to reconciliation, so they say that differences and disputes could exist between God the Father, Almighty, and the Son, which is altogether absurd. But we believe and affirm that he uttered, the Father and I are one, because of the unity of the hypostasis, which is a single one of Father and of Son. This we have always believed, that he reigns without beginning and without end with the Father. Again, this part is depressing. Look, is it really blasphemous to say that the point of the writer of the gospel according to John is to highlight the agreement and harmony between Jesus and God. That's not blasphemous. In my view, that seems to be Jesus's point throughout. The Father who dwells in me does his works. I'm in the Father, the Father's in me. Jesus is arguing that the Jews are obligated to believe in him because of the miracles that God is doing through him. They say, are you really claiming to be the Messiah? He says, of course I am. And you should know that. If you weren't so hostile to God, you would know that. He says the Father and I are one. They say they're going to stone him for blasphemy because he's making himself God. Jesus then says, well, wait a second. Your scripture has people being called gods. I'm greater than those people. So how can it be blasphemous to say that I'm God's son? So he seems to correct them. He's not claiming to be God. He's claiming to be God's son, the Messiah, just like he had told them. And the passage doesn't end up with him going up. Oh, that's right. You finally got it. I'm God I'm claiming to be God. That's exactly right. You know, the Messiah is God. It's not just an anointed human. No, he corrects them, says he's God's son and says, look, if I'm not doing his works, don't believe me and don't take my word for it. You've got to believe the works. You've got to know and understand, he says, the Father that is God is working through me and I am in the Father. Where's the claim about essence there? And the passage from John 17 just seems to reinforce that it's functional unity that's involved. It's agreement of values and choices and actions. Jesus is in God and God is in him and he prays that Christians can be in the two of them and be one with them and this way testify to the world and reveal God to the world. It's a community of love between God and Jesus, the man who is the mediator between God and the rest of humans and Jesus' followers. Back to the statement, 
we who are Catholics condemn this silly and wretched idea of theirs. Did that sound silly and wretched? And by the way, the opponents they're blasting here were Catholics. It's just ridiculous to say that they're not. It's ridiculous, over-the-top, hot-headed, disgraceful rhetoric. It's like a talk show host blasting, I don't know, Democrats as not Americans. Well, of course they're Americans, you knucklehead. They're not traitors just because they have different political values, different political agenda than you have. And then they just assert again, Jesus is just saying when he says the Father and I are one, that we are one hypostasis. Which is to say that we've got the same essence, the same defining essential features. That is deity, divinity, godhood, or to use the antique term, godhead. Finally, we get on to the Holy Spirit and to the Incarnation. We believe in and hand down the Comforter, the Holy Spirit, which the Lord promised and sent to us. And we believe that he was sent, and that he, the Spirit, did not suffer, but the man whom he put on, whom he assumed from the Virgin Mary, the man who was capable of suffering, because man is mortal, but God is immortal. We believe that he rose again the third day, and God did not rise in the man, but the man in God, the man whom he also offered to the Father as his gift, whom he had freed. We believe that at a proper and determined time he will judge all men and all cause. The Holy Spirit here really isn't an issue. Their statement is as ambiguous as the Easterners' statement. What's interesting are the speculations here about the Incarnation. Again, it seems to confuse the Holy Spirit with the Logos. It insists that the Spirit did not suffer, but the man whom the Spirit put on suffered. Whoa, slow down. So in addition to the eternal Son of God, there's also a man. So they're distinguishing between Jesus and the Son of God. That's not a New Testament distinction. In the New Testament, that one son of Mary, there's only one person there, only one self there, not two. There's not a man and also an eternal Logos. If the Logos theory is correct, well, then that Logos would have to be the same self as the man Jesus. Not easy to see how that could be, yes, this is the sort of view that was later rejected by the Catholic movement as constituting the heresy of Nestorianism. And without getting into that whole story, yes, it does seem like a disastrously bad interpretation of the New Testament. And they make a good point here that God is immortal. That's part of the essence of divinity. So if the Father is immortal and the Son shares his essence, or here his hypostasis, the Son also is immortal. So what they're saying is the Logos slash Spirit, that thing, that being, rather, can't die. But of course, something died on the cross for your sins. Well, that was the man. Well, their view makes sense to this extent. A man can die, at least until that man is granted immortality. Humans, men as we see them now, are mortal. They are subject to death. I mean, they're basically saying Jesus died, but Christ or the Son of God didn't. Again, that's not what the New Testament says. But on the other hand, at least there is something which can die there. 
if you just say that it was the human nature that perished, well, it's not clear that the human nature is a kind of thing which can perish. If you say that Jesus died in his human nature, well, it looks like it just follows in that Jesus died. But I thought Jesus was essentially divine. So this is a central problem for this type of Christology, which is still developing and which is continuing to develop in Catholic tradition for the next couple hundred years. And so God, the Logos, didn't rise from the dead because Logos didn't die. Logos can't die. Logos is immortal. But the man rose. It says, the man whom he, the Logos, also offered to the Father as his gift, whom he had freed. Wow, so then Jesus is a recipient of salvation at the hands of the Logos. And it was Jesus that was offered by the Logos to God as a sacrifice. Man, that is not the New Testament. In the New Testament, Jesus offers himself. He volunteers, basically. Well, he doesn't want to do it, but he realizes that it's God's will. And so in a sense, it's voluntary. In another sense, it's involuntary. But yeah, this transaction between the Logos and God involving this extra man, this human self, looks like a real problem. Here then is how they end, with a few last kicks at the Easterners. Such is their folly, and their mind is blinded by so thick a darkness that they cannot see the light of truth. They do not understand the words of the texts, that they may all be one. It is clear why one is said because the apostles have received the Holy Spirit of God, but not, however, that they themselves were spirit, nor any of them was logos, or wisdom, or power, nor was any only begotten. But the divine utterance carefully distinguished, saying, There may be one in us. It did not say, As we are one, I and the Father, but the disciples are linked and united among themselves by their confession of faith, so that they could be one in grace and worship of God the Father and in the peace and the love of our Lord and Saviour. So they're saying that the Easterners don't correctly interpret those two passages from the Gospel according to John because they're spiritually blind and so fools. Great. Are they right that the divine utterance carefully distinguished saying that they may be one in us and not saying that the disciples would be one as we are one? That is the Father and the Logos. Well, I don't see the distinction there. Jesus prays that the disciples will be one and then he uses the language of being in God and being in Jesus, just like God and Jesus are in each other. So they should be one in us. Is the text really distinguishing the sense in which Jesus and the Father are one from the sense in which the disciples should be one? I don't see it. I think they're just projecting that there based on their theological orientation. Right after he prays that they may all be one, he says this, As you, Father, are in me, and I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. And then he prays that they would be one, as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be completely one, so that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Yeah, 
seems to clearly be a unity of will, maybe of values, of action. When the Trinity's podcast returns, the aftermath... Here's what Hansen says, summarizing the scholarship of some other historians and commenting on some of the reactions to this document. Lufs, this is a previous historian, Lufs saw the document as an official attempt fostered by Osius and Protogenes and accepted by the Western bishops to produce, with the aid of Marcellus's theology, an interpretation of the Creed of Nicaea, which would satisfy the Westerners and oppose the Easterners. This is perhaps the nearest we can come to classifying it. Zeiler and de Klerk find the profession of faith gravely embarrassing, bothly because it appears to commit the Western Church to a form of Sabellianism, approved or at least not reproved by the Pope, and also because Athanasius, their paragon, in 362 violently denied that the Council of Serdica had produced any such document, though he certainly knew that it had. A final count against this document is that, in the words of Kopacek, quote, it, the Western Council, issued an encyclical which defined Arianism so broadly that nearly every Easterner who had ever heard of Origen was considered an Arian, end quote. So the Grand Ecumenical Council turned out not to be ecumenical, a meaning intended to heal the disagreements in language between Eastern and Western Catholic bishops only made people double down on those differences and really made the disputes worse. On the face of it, the Westerners were all considered to be Sibelians. That's not fair, of course, because they distinguished the Father, Son, and Spirit. They just confusingly said that they were one hypostasis, which to an Easterner meant the same being. But they were really saying that they all three share in divinity. And seemingly that divinity is from the Father, although they don't say very much about that. And as far as these Westerners are concerned, the Easterners are a bunch of dirty Aryans. This too is ridiculous. They're not Aryans. They specifically denounce Arius. To call them Aryans is just polemic. It's just inaccurate accusation masquerading as a theological judgment. They were subordinationists, yes, in a originist vein. Arius was long dead by now, and he had never been the leader of their party, not really. Some of them had sided with Arius, that's true. But these are people that had their own views for their own reasons, and who didn't entirely agree with Arius. The whole thing then was an embarrassing catastrophe, really, and cooler heads realized that it was. Cooler heads wanted there to be some kind of reconciliation and compromise, hotter heads were just ginned up to fight all the more. On the next Trinity's podcast, we'll hear some arguments from one of the hotheads. Today's thinking music has been the track Labyrinth by Sergei Chermisinov. You can listen to or download that whole track 
at the blog post for this episode at trinities.org. Do you enjoy listening to the Trinities podcast? There are four ways you can show us some love in return. First, share the blog post for this episode on whatever social media you use, such as Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, or Google+. Second, you can leave us a rating and a brief review in the iTunes store and at Stitcher. For step-by-step directions on how to do this, visit trinities.org blog review. Doing this will help other people who are interested in theology to find this podcast. Third, you can donate to the cause by clicking the orange donate buttons to the right of any blog post. Do you think these episodes are worth a quarter apiece? If so, you can donate a dollar each month via PayPal. And of course, any one-time gift is much appreciated. Fourth, you can send us some brief, to-the-point audio feedback for possible incorporation into a future episode. We would love to hear your question or your comment in your voice. The upload link for your audio file is on the blog post for any episode. To sum up, you can share, rate, donate, and talk back. Thanks for listening. We'll see you online at trinities.org. Till next time, don't forget to love God with all your mind.